Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Podcasts. Nailing it. (laughs) (laughs) So... I probably said that out of order, but we've said all the things we need to say, except (laughs) what we are talking about today, which is cruise ships. Uh, This is one of our Kyla-led episodes, so Kyla, I'll let you tell folks what we're going to be talking about. I don't lead the episodes very often, and when I do, they're usually like a little fluffier. This is my first ever two-parter, and I can tell you at the beginning that it's going to be a two-parter because the cruise ship industry has a lot going on. Yeah, Kyla, I guess it's important background that you have worked on a cruise ship before. Have you ever been a passenger on one? No, I haven't. Have you? No. (laughs) Yeah, the first time I ever saw a cruise ship was when I walked onto the dock to board it as an employee. And I went in through like the you know, the basement entrance. So oh, they don't uh, let you use the real entrance. No, no, <laughs> okay. no. You go through the servant's entrance, Kristen. <laughs> Yikes. So when I say that we're talking about cruise ships, I want to be clear that we're talking about the ocean liner cruise industry. River cruises are a beast of their own. I don't know if we'll ever need to do an episode on river cruises. I'm sure if we, I mean, if we ever run out of ideas, that it'll come up, or if we had a lot of requests. If yeah, my just... parents are doing a river cruise in like six oh. months, so I'm glad we're not ruining that for them. <laughs> <laughs> when you picture a cruise, Kristen, what comes to mind? All you can eat buffets, people in shirts with flowers on them, <laughs> <laughs> old people playing shuffleboard. <laughs> also like Celine Dion because the Titanic. <laughs> was that a cruise ship or was that just a regular ship? I don't even know. Titanic was a cruise ship. It was a cruise ship. It's uh, kind of a shitty cruise ship now compared to what we have <laughs> today. <laughs> I mean, also the ships we have don't sink very often. Not <laughs> Never, but not often. <laughs> Well, you said this was going to be a grim episode, so I'm glad to hear it's not going to be all about sinking. (laughs) No, actually, there's actually there's a famous ship that sunk, I think, in 2012. It's called the Costa Concordia. And you can watch like it's it's back when iPhones first really became a thing. So the whole thing you can watch. They made a documentary. People recorded the whole thing happening on their phones. So it's like live footage from inside the ship as it was sinking. And it was such a clusterfuck, Kristen. (laughs) It's so bad that they made us watch this documentary as training when I was going onto the cruise ship myself because they were like, this is everything that you don't do in an emergency. Like a whole bunch of people died needlessly. The ship didn't even sink all the way because it wasn't like deep water. It only sank like halfway. Look it up, you guys. I'll share links to it. We're not going to talk about it too much. But yeah, Costa Concordia, fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) But no, this is not an episode about sinking ships. For me, I'm going to tell you what I picture when I think of a cruise ship. So for me, it's the sound of the deep hum of the engine and the gentle rocking of the ocean as I fall asleep, exhausted after a long day. It's waking in pitch blackness moments later, or so it feels, to an alarm and then taking turns with my bunkmate as we get ready for another day at sea. It's speed walking along deck two, which runs the length of the ship and keeps you out of the sight of passengers. It's getting hundreds of people jazzed for a handbag sale. (laughs) (laughs) It's sitting in the crew bar at night. It's the smell of sun lotion and salt water on a hot sunny day. It's feeling relieved when, after nearly fainting with exhaustion, the doctor tells me I have a UTI so I can have the afternoon off. (laughs) Oh, no. He's like, 
judgmental about it. Like I should power through, but I'm so tired that I'm like, whatever, I'll take the afternoon. Thank you. It's the feeling of pain as I fold t-shirts and slide them into plastic bags while powering through a crushed finger injury that removed the nail from my left pointer the day before. Yikes. Yeah, it's feeling so close to a group of people, I start to wonder if I've ever understood the word family and what it meant before. It's listening to them complain about the job, swearing that this is their last contract. It's waving goodbye to them. It's welcoming them back two months later. (laughs) Yeah, I remember um, you came to visit me right after your cruise ship contract and you were like, should I go back? (laughs) I was like, well, it sounds like it was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's complicated. And I could honestly talk for hours, as you can as you can tell, like about what it was like to work on a ship. I'm not going to do that. We're going to talk about a lot of other things. I'll briefly mention what it was like for me to work on it. But I wanted to start with like that image of what a cruise ship is because it's it's complicated. I've heard that everyone cries in their first week. All of my friends admitted to it, and I certainly did. Why, why is that that people cry in their first week? Is it like a combination of realizing how hard it is and like realizing you're stuck there or what's... Yeah, I think, and like you're, and you, you miss your home, you miss your family. It's a little bit of a culture shock no matter where you're coming from. Cruise ships are kind of like if a high school and a prison had a baby and it was also a cult. Ah, I don't know. High school and prison, famously places where people are having the best time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a lot better than those things. I'm not doing it justice. It's just like, it's just such a weird, it's like a dollhouse. I don't know. It's very strange. Anyways, I have a lot of bummer things to say, so I want to start by sharing the appeal of cruises. If anyone listening has ever been on a cruise or they're dreaming of taking one, I get it. And I'm not here to make you feel bad about who you are as a person. Although if you feel bad at the end of these episodes <laughs> about cruises, I'm, I mean, that's probably the, the right way to feel. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I had all that much desire to go on a cruise ship, but... And I'm sure we'll talk about this. After all of the people stuck on them during the early COVID pandemic, I'm kind of like, it's a never for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of reasons that people would want to go on a cruise. It's a really easy vacation. It gets you out of town. It's usually pretty affordable, especially if you're going as a family of four. You can unpack once and visit like multiple destinations. You have access to food that you won't have to think about. So like if you're visiting a country for the first time, you're like, oh, I don't know where to eat. I don't know what like the menu say. That's not a problem on a cruise ship. There's a buffet. <laughs> <laughs> it's really easy to join excursions. The ship basically like does everything for you. The whole point of a cruise is you can show up and turn your brain off. No matter who you are, there is a cruise for you. Disney Cruise Lines have floating parks. There are nude cruises, gambling cruises, grand ships, and destination ships. I'm sorry, there are nude cruises. You can't just blow by that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I don't know. I've never been on one. I've heard. I've heard about them. People just like charter ships for like work and stuff. But also like there's themed ships that do weird things. And there's like quite a few I've heard. If that's not right, somebody can correct me. Maybe it's just like a myth in the industry, but I'm pretty sure it's true. (laughs) (laughs) But on my ship, we were at sea like half the time. And that worked for us because we had so many amenities that it's like impossible to ever be bored on an Oasis class ship. (laughs) It's also like really social. It's really easy to make friends, especially for adults. I think the average age of the cruiser is about 47. So it's really nice for people 
to all be in one place where the booze is running and no one has any fucking chores and you just chat with the other people who are next to you and you at least have one thing in common. You fucking love cruises. So, you know, boom, instant friends. I also want to talk about why someone would want to work on a cruise because I think the appeal doesn't immediately become obvious to a lot of people because like the pay is like low by Canadian standards. But it's all right when you're from like a country where 500 to 1500 US dollars goes a lot farther. Like (laughs) it goes a lot farther in the Philippines than it does in Vancouver. And then you factor in the free food. Um, You don't have to pay rent, at least on the ship. A lot of people are paying rent back home. They're sending money back home to their families. You get free medical care. So when you factor in all those things, the wage isn't actually like all that bad, as long as you don't do an hourly (laughs) conversion. (laughs) But we'll talk about that in a bit. So unless I go back to ships, I probably won't experience anything like the closeness I felt to my crewmates ever again. I had a blast with my crewmates. Each and every one of them was an absolutely delightful human being, and it's really easy to miss that friendship when you disembark for vacation. I think it's a big part of what draws folks back when they've sworn that the last contract is the final one, you know? (laughs) The ports are beautiful. The alcohol is super cheap for crewmates, which is fun at first. There's a huge party culture and lots of drinking and sex, but it doesn't take much for alcohol to turn into a crutch that folks use to cope with the stress of cruise life. Plus, I can't imagine working 12-hour shifts all the time with a hangover. Like, that sounds terrible. Truly. Truly. I mean, I hadn't had alcohol in over two years when I went to ships, and I made it three months without drinking. But in the last four months, I drank a lot. And yeah, working (laughs) with a hangover seven days a week for seven months straight, I can't imagine. (laughs) I mean, I can half imagine. (laughs) Okay, so those are all of the reasons that people might want to go on a cruise or or work on a cruise. So let's talk about the bad news. (laughs) I'm going to be exploring the cruise industry's effects on the environment, animal welfare, and three specific communities, passengers, crew, and ports of call. And I'm actually going to be doing it in the reverse order of what I just said. So just to mess with people. Got to keep the listeners on their toes. Yeah, absolutely. When I do an episode, I like to start uh, with my general facts. Kristen likes to start with like a history of the industry that we're talking about, which is the like academically and journalistically correct way to do it. But wow, that was a really nice way of calling me boring. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about it. I was like, I should do like a history of cruising. And then I was like, bah, that's boring. I don't care. Let's talk about about the interesting (laughs) things about cruises today. There are approximately 300 cruise ships and 55 cruise companies. Wait, there's only 300 cruise ships? I know, right? That's kind of less than I would have thought. Yeah, but they're huge, right? So, and like, I I think there's like 500 river cruise boats. So when you factor those in, it's like a lot. But yeah, there's only about 300. And I couldn't even get like a full read on exactly the number because different sources had different numbers from like 292 to 310. And I was like, why don't we know exactly how many cruise ships there are? I think there are more super yachts than there are cruise ships then. Oh, You and your vendetta against super yachts. (laughs) I mean, honestly, though, super yachts are the worst. Followed maybe very closely by cruise ships. (laughs) So a lot of the statistics that I'm going to look at are going to be for 2019, for obvious reasons, I think. But just to be clear, in 2020, there was a pandemic and 
the cruising industry took a big hit. <laughs> Not a lot of people going on cruises in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2018, cruises carried over 28 million passengers, which was up 7% from 2017. And they were projected to carry 32 million passengers in 2020. It's like the entire nation of Canada going on cruise ships every year. Yeah, everyone. And honestly, a lot of cruisers are Canadians. So it's like not even that far (laughs) off. The average cruise is seven days. 49.9% of cruisers are from North America. 25.1% are European. 20% are from the Asia Pacific area. And 3% are from South America. And then like 1.7% are listed as other. But isn't all that's left like Africa? Like... The cruise industry is absolutely dominated by three major players. The first one is Carnival Corporation, which has 41% of the market share. The second is Royal Caribbean, which has 21% of the market share. And then there's Norwegian, which has 13% of the market share. Ah, so fun, fun oligopoly also. Truly, yeah. There's <laughs> a, the three of them together are more than like 75% of the market share. It's wild. They all operate subsidiary cruise lines, which is how they have such a large presence. So Carnival operates Holland America, P&O, and Princess Cruises, which are the ones that people probably know the most. And then they have like a few others. Royal Caribbean also has Celebrity Cruises and Silver Sea. And then Norwegian also has Oceana and Regent Seven Seas. So if you're like, oh, I'm going to sail with Celebrity, you're actually sailing with Royal Caribbean. I think a lot of people already knew that, but it's easy to like miss, you know? In 2019, Carnival's profits were almost $21 billion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's some Dr. Evil shit. <laughs> and that's just one company. I think together the three of them made like $46 billion in profit. Maybe could have used some of that to raise some wages or give people... <laughs> Shorter shifts, but... Yeah. I mean, uh, the sh- the shifts thing is so complicated because, like, you can only fit so many people on a ship and then, like, they have to do all of this work. So in order to have more shorter shifts, you'd have to have more crew cabins, which would mean fewer passenger cabins, which means less money, but they're making a lot of money. So they could just do that. <laughs> Anyways, my ship was the Oasis of the Seas. She cost approximately $1.24 billion to build in 2006. And there are now five Oasis-class ships that are about the same size. The newest one is Wonder of the Seas, which can carry up to 6,988 passengers and 2,300 crew. Wow, that's like a small town. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're floating cities, honestly. It's 362 meters long, 18 decks high, and weighs nearly 237,000 tons. This is going to sound like an advertisement now. It has a full-size basketball court, an ice skating rink, a zip line. Wait, it has an ice skating rink? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, yeah, they do like an ice show and then like also God damn, take the take out the ice skating rink and add more crew. <laughs> <laughs> There's a surfing simulator, there's mini golf, there's two rock climbing walls, there's a theater that seats 1,400 people, there's an outdoor aquatic theater, there are restaurants, shops, bars, a huge casino, pools, and eight distinct neighborhoods. The Central Park neighborhood has over 10,000 real plants, and 
It's setting out on its maiden voyage today, Kristen. Today, March 4th. AKA uh, Maisie's birthday. <laughs> ah, it's your dog's birthday. It's also the maiden voyage of the wonder of the seas. So, <laughs> all right, now it's time to look behind the curtain. Now that we've now that we've jazzed everyone up with how awesome cruising is and why it's such a big industry, like you can kind of see the appeal, right? Um, yeah. Although on the other hand, I feel like even going to a movie theater now, I feel vaguely agoraphobic because <laughs> it's been so long since I've been in crowds. <laughs> So I feel like I'd find a cruise very stressful. I mean, you wouldn't be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Cruise lines love to talk about how good they are for local economies, but an international research team led a comprehensive review published in 2021 that found, quote, cruising is a major source of environmental pollution and degradation with air, water, soil, fragile habitats, and wildlife affected. They also found that, The cruise ship industry is a potential source of physical and mental human health risks to passengers, staff, and land-based residents who live near ports or work in shipyards. The review combined evidence from more than 200 research papers on the health of people and the environment in different oceans and seas around the world. So it's not great. (laughs) No, it's not great. Um, We're going to start with tax evasion. I decided to put that first because it kind of... um, It lays a foundation for what the cruise industry is and how it works and how everything around it kind of functions. While Carnival, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian have their headquarters in Florida, their companies are registered with Can You Guess Where? Oh, God. I don't know. (laughs) Bahamas? A lot of ships are registered in the Bahamas, but the actual companies for Carnival, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian are registered in Panama, Liberia, and Bermuda, in that order. Bermuda should have been my first guess. (laughs) Yeah, so this means that they aren't beholden to labor laws in the United States. They don't have to pay federal taxes. For folks who want to learn more about how this sort of thing works, you can check out our tax justice episode that we did with the fabulous Faria Mohudin, and we're going to be re-releasing that very soon as well. So it should be coming out probably on Tuesday after we release the second half of this on Thursday. So look for that because it's very good and we recommend it. Hell yeah. And I don't want to get into how tax evasion works with cruise ships here because it's just, it's too much and I already have so much to say. (laughs) Kristen, do you know how flags of convenience work? No. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. You might have noticed, but maybe not because like we both grew up in Edmonton. There's not a lot of cruise ships there, but other people might have noticed that ships often fly flags that are not from the countries that the company is headquartered in or even necessarily registered in. Does does this mean they don't have to follow the laws? (laughs) Is that why they do it? Yeah, that's exactly it. (laughs) Was that just a lucky guess? (laughs) That's all I know about flags of convenience. (laughs) Yeah, basically under international law, all ships must have a flag state and registering ships with the Flags of convenience countries is just another way to avoid taxes, keep wages low, and have very minimal regulation. From what I can tell, this practice really started in 1922 when two passenger ships from the USA wanted to serve liquor during Prohibition, so they transferred the ships to Panama's registry. Sure. You know, I'm kind of for that one. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. It's such a noble history. (laughs) Now it's being used for evil. During the Cold War, the USA registered ships under Liberia to build a neutral, quote-unquote, fleet, which, like, surely Russia would have seen that, right? Like, yeah. Liberia was, like, kind of an American colony. (laughs) 
I didn't have time to get into the history of that. I just saw that come up and I was like, what the hell? So I'd be curious to learn more for any of my history buffs out there. Countries do sort of benefit financially from this through like services, fees, and taxes, but it is really dodgy. There are international laws that require countries operating open registries to inspect vessels and investigate accidents and corruption, but flag of convenience countries are notoriously bad at this. (laughs) Using Panama as an example, they have the largest quote-unquote fleet in the world with over 7,000 vessels. Panama's population is 4.4 million people. So this tiny country is responsible for looking after 7,000 ships. It's it just it's like unfeasible. Like it would probably cost more than they're getting from the industry to inspect every ship thoroughly. Although even if they did have the money and the manpower, I, it's really not a priority for them. I found a survey of 1,500 folks in Panama in 2018 and 19, and 15% of respondents said that they had paid a bribe to public or private authorities in the last 12 months. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> corruption runs pretty deep. <laughs> that is such a high number. I, I know. And I, so I, it, was, it was such a high number that I, I, I like, did a, a media bias fact check on the site. So I, uh, the site that I, I used was statista.com. And I was like, this seems like a legitimate statistics website. And, yeah, the media bias fact check website was like, yeah, these guys are legit. And I was like, god damn. Yeah, I use them for industry stats a lot of the time when I'm doing those boring industry histories. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So cruise lines are not paying taxes in the countries that they operate in, um, but they'll be quick to say that they pay fees at every port and they pay per passenger head taxes at ports that require them, which can be between $2 and $15 a head. But that is built into the price of the ticket. So passengers are paying that and ships have threatened to boycott ports if they try to raise the fees, which means a port might be receiving less than what it costs to maintain the facilities that the cruise lines are demanding. Fuck that. Yeah, that's bullshit. (laughs) But it's understandable how... um politically that is a situation that ends up happening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the long and short of it is they pay about 1% to 2% of their income in taxes in the USA. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, how much was the industry making in profits again? $46 billion for the top three. Awesome. (laughs) I don't know if this is the most frustrating part, but I'm not happy about it. Whenever there's a problem at sea, and a rescue is needed, whether because a passenger has fallen overboard or because a fire has broken out on board and the ship is stranded, they call the Coast Guard for help. And the cost of a rescue effort for a passenger overboard can be between $500,000 and a million dollars. American. 14 people on average fall overboard every year. Rescuing a dead ship can be as much as $5 million. I'm sorry, 14 people fall overboard every year? I guess that is like overall, but still, how do you fall overboard on a cruise ship? Oh, you're drunk. You're very drunk all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Or you get into fights or there's just murder happening. I didn't even have time to get into all the crime that happens at sea, but murder is a thing that happens. And I'm going to share some links so people can read about it on their own time if they want. If anyone listening wants to do a true crime podcast about cruise ships, I am in for that send it to me and I will subscribe. (laughs) (laughs) But like the point is that ships don't pay the Coast Guard back for these rescue operations and they don't send thank you cards to all the taxpayers of whatever country came to their rescue. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, who ends up paying for that? Like, is it the cruise ship company that pays the Coast Guard or? No, the American taxpayers pay the Coast Guard and that's it. (sighs) That's dumb. (laughs) Or the taxpayers in France or wherever they are that they are coming to the rescue of the ship. It's the taxpayers in that country that are paying for that. And it's not even that. Like, it's, it's, they're using all sorts of government services to operate in these countries, and they're not paying into them. It's the same problem. We talked about it in our tax justice episode. It's the same problem with Amazon benefiting from, like, roads that drive their employees to their warehouses, but they don't pay to maintain those, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, any, any, I mean, I said I wouldn't really get into the crimes, but just a side note on that. Flying flags of convenience make investigating crimes super difficult. If a death or assault happens on board, and it might, make the cruise line look bad, they can just refuse to cooperate with the investigation. Yeah. And I guess it would be then like the Panamanian authorities who would be tasked with investigating, which probably they don't care about that much because it's not like their citizens are probably the ones implicated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like most of the time, the industry, when it's reporting on crime, it's American Americans reporting. I mean, they are like 50% of the cruisers. So that makes sense. I would watch like a narco style series that's just like the Panamanian cruise ship. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <crime> <laughs> <team>. <laughs> the, the investigators. <laughs> they just take another bribe and go home. <laughs> and then finally, just for on my tax evasion money sort of section here, the industry as a whole spent nearly $5 million on lobbying last year. Sure. Of course they did. So they don't have to pay it in taxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and I, all of their lobbyists are ex-government officials, so they know what they're doing. Okay, are you ready to talk about community well-being? Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to start by talking about how ports are affected by cruise ships. Ships promise to boost local economies whenever they're bargaining for new ports, but often they end up cutting deals with local vendors, which either creates a model where vendors are paying for recommendations to the passengers, or the cruise lines just are taking a straight cut. Cruises can take up to 70% of the onshore revenue, which means not only are they not putting money into the system through taxes and fees, they're keeping passengers spending within their own ecosystem as well. In some cases, they have private ports that keep passengers away from the island's small businesses and communities, and anyone making money in those ports is paying to access that exclusive space. We had a port on my ship's itinerary that was exactly like this. It's called Labadee, and it's in Haiti, and it's just this gated community in this peninsula that is completely blocked off from the rest of the country. So people are like, oh, I went to Haiti, and it's like, did Did you? you? (laughs) Disney's attempting to build a private port in the Bahamas in a spot slated for environmental protection in delicate reefs, so... So, like, when they are creating these private ports, is it mostly profit-based? Because I can imagine another argument with the Haitian one that, you know, there's some safety concerns, but, you know, you don't want a cruise ship passengers getting kidnapped or something. Yeah, I don't know how much of a problem that is. I haven't done a lot of research on, like, Haiti or I mean there is I know that there's like a little bit of extra crime in the Bahamas which is where that Disney port is trying to build a private location but it's also like the country is paying to maintain these places for these ships and they're not benefiting from them yeah they're the communities aren't getting anything out of this I mean maybe I'm wrong I I didn't I'm doing a pretty broad overview of the cruising industry. And so, like, if anyone wants to challenge me on that, I would be more than welcome to hearing it. You can you can definitely send that to me. I'd be really curious. 
It's probably one of those like little of column A, little, little of column B sort of situations where, I mean, in the Bahamas, that seems like a much safer location. Um, so probably it's mostly profit driven, but I'm sure there are some places where it legitimately is a safety concern. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, here's a funny one, though, sort of. Uh, <laughs> Pr- uh, Princess Cruises had to apologize in 2019 after staff welcomed passengers and the staff were dressed as Maori in grass skirts with black markings on their faces. Oh, no. And they were not Maori oh, no. staff members. <laughs> oh, no. The ship's photographer was there, presumably to take oh, photos no. of passengers to sell later. Like, what the <laughs> Princess apologized immediately upon. They're like, as soon as they saw it, they were like, holy shit. We did not condone this. Uh, <laughs> sorry, guys. <laughs> it was really bad. And it was like, Yikes. it was like in 2019. It was so bad. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, oh, I, no. I, you can find links to all of these things on our website research page. I don't know who I feel worse for, like the culture that was being uh, appropriated or the the crew members who were forced to do it, you know, because it wasn't their idea. I can tell you that. And like, you can tell by the looks on their faces, they're not happy to be doing it either. (laughs) Okay. So now let's talk about the crew community. Here I get to talk a little bit more from personal experience. Most ships must follow what's called the Maritime Labor Convention of 2006, which states that you must have at least 10 hours of rest in a 24-hour period and 77 hours of rest in seven days. There's like other stipulations that you could do instead, but that's the one that ships do. Cool. So (laughs) that's like less protective than like 1940s era American labor law. That is, and I mean, that's why they, that's the other reason they register in like Panama is because Panama doesn't have, like their labor laws are the same or worse, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So that's the maritime law. Hours of rest must be no more than two periods and one of them needs to be at least six hours. You cannot work more than 14 hours without rest. So basically you can't exceed 91 hours of work a week is what it really comes down to. Not all countries have signed on to this agreement, but Panama, Bermuda, and Liberia have. So. Okay. So, like, when I showed up, in my first month on board, I had to do all of my normal ship training, which is a lot of extra hours. And then we were also doing our, I think it was, I think they do it once a year, maybe twice a year, uh, the inventory. Because I was working in the shops. I was I was uh, a shoppy, as they are called, <laughs> on board. So anyone who's ever worked in retail will know what a nightmare an inventory is. But I can tell you it's a special sort of hell on a cruise ship. Normally, a shop will do an inventory in one night. They'll bring all of their employees in when the shop closes, maybe on a Sunday. If you close earlier that day, then you'll work through the night. Then maybe you'll all get pizza together in the morning. You know, whatever. It's 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 It sucks, but it's okay. It's sort of like that on ships too, but it takes a month because there's so many shops and so few workers and we have like some sort of labor laws that we have to follow. (laughs) So we have to open up and sell stuff like the next day. So we have to do constant recounts. And I just, I feel sick just thinking about it. Like Maybe they fixed it since 2015. If someone's listening and you just did an inventory on a cruise ship, please tell me it got better. So anyways, in the first like month that I was there, I exceeded the 300 hours that you can really work that month. But normally, I would only work between 250 and 270 hours a month. That's seven days a week, seven months straight. 
there's like different ways that our managers would incentivize us uh, for like as a shop employee. It's different in every place that you're working on a ship. But for us, if we hit our targets, our sales targets, then they would give us like an evening off. So they would have somebody cover us for three or four hours in the night and you could go get like dinner or something. So that's nice, you know? Should be basic, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So hours and pay vary wildly depending on your cruise ship line, the ship you're on, and the position you're in. Cleaners, food prep, servers, they're more likely to be working that 300 plus hour month the whole time. And they can make anywhere between $400 US a month and $1,700 US a month. And it's a pretty wide margin because there's no baseline. And a lot of it comes down to, yeah, the size of your ship, the amount of gratuity that is either included or just left by the people that you have been working with for the last seven days. Are there sort of standardized, like on a ship, are there sort of standardized rates for each um role or how does that work? I tried to find the answer to that. And ships are very tight-lipped about what the rules are. So I only really know from my own experience. And that's not ideal because I only worked on one ship seven years ago. You know what I mean? So yeah, I was just wondering because I can imagine like in an opaque system like that, you have racialized like disparities or like disparities across countries based on like colonial perceptions or whatever? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if the big cruise lines fall into that. I wouldn't be surprised if they did, but I don't don't want to accuse them of it because I just never really saw that in my own experience and I didn't read anything about it. But I mean, of course, I wouldn't be completely shocked if that was the (laughs) case. I know that security guards were making about, I think, $700 a month on our ship. I was making a base rate of $500, but I was also making commission. And because I was on the biggest ship in the world at the time, commission was really good. I was banking between like $1,100 and $1,800 a month. On smaller ships, you're almost definitely making that $500 base though. But it's a lot less work. So I don't know. (laughs) It, It just depends. It just depends. I don't know if anything's changed since then. I would hope that if things have changed, it's for the better. But again, it was all very opaque. So, And then, of course, you get, in addition to the salary, that free place to stay, free food, free medical care. So depending on your expenses at home, the exchange rate that you are using, you might actually be making pretty decent money. Or you could be getting totally fleeced. It's kind of luck of the draw (laughs) since you can't choose what ship you're sent to. And if you're like, there's, what, 55 companies, but only three of them have that huge market share. So if you're on one of those 52 other company ships, I don't know how badly they're being treated. But I mean, I would think that if you are going to have racist pay, it's probably more likely to happen on those smaller ship lines because Carnival and Royal and Norwegian are getting looked at a lot. But I don't know. My experience with Royal is that at least on the ship level, people try to be pretty fair. The the people in charge that I that I dealt with, um, especially there was like an ethics officer that I that I dealt with, and they were lovely and they really seemed to care about the work. And maybe I was being indoctrinated into the royal cult, <laughs> but I mean it makes you feel better. So <laughs> none of my complaints really are with how they treat workers. Like yeah, it's by Canadian standards very bad, but by the standards of like Canadian agricultural workers, maybe it's actually not so bad. Yeah. Least wage theft isn't an issue, question mark? 
<laughs> I mean, actually, it totally was um, in the shops. Uh, what they would do, <laughs> sorry, um, I'm, this is going to be like a, a small tangent, but what they would do is um, there's a lot of racial bias on who does what kind of shopping. So at the beginning of every cruise, my manager would tell us what the demographics were on board. So he'd be like, okay, there's, you know, 2,000 Americans and 600 Brazilians and 96 people from China. And, and then he would tell us like, okay, so we're going to, we're going to really focus on the watches for the Brazilians. And we're going to really focus on the beauty products and the diamonds for the, for the Chinese. And we're going to really focus on the $10 cheap garbage for the Americans. <laughs> really cool, casual racism. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's all buying trends, but yeah, it, it did feel gross. And, and on top of that, my my cabin mate for most of my time on the ship was from China. So they would call her to the jewelry shop a lot to do translations for our Chinese guests. And she would make sales, but then she wouldn't get any of the commission for those jewelry sales. It would go to the jewelry associate who had like initiated the sale because she wasn't technically in the jewelry shop. So they would borrow her from the shop that I shared with her they would borrow her for two, three hours to make a sale and then she wouldn't make any money from it. So, wow. yeah, there was a lot of like racially based issues definitely on the ships, but it was a little more subtle than just a flat out, these guys are getting paid less, you know? Yeah, yeah. Sort of uh, stuff that probably happens in a lot of industries. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you look into, um, did anybody like, have there been attempts to start unions on cruise ships and anything like that? There is like a labor group that does represent people at sea, but because it's all so international and because it's all so fragmented and because companies are very careful to register in countries that don't have strong labor laws, it's really hard, you know? And cruise ship workers, for the most part, I think, feel like they get treated well enough that there's no urgent need for something like that. I mean, there probably is an urgent need, but nobody feels like it. Or you're all too fucking tired to be able to sure, do yeah. it. <laughs> Maybe that's more like what it is. Plus, you're like stuck in international waters on this boat that you also live in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're at port and you like misplace your watch and you miss your ship, it's like your home is sailing away from you. And you do not have your passport with you when you're on shore, I can tell you that. Like, you get onto the ship, they take your passport, and they lock it up, and you get it when you leave. Is that for everybody or just people that work there? Uh, it's for people that work there. It's for people that work there. I don't actually, I don't know. I've never been a passenger. That seems like a red flag to me. Why would they take your passport? <laughs> because they don't want people to disembark in a country and then not get back on. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. All right. It seems, it's one of those things that's like, that seems really shady. But then you're like, ah. I can see the other side of it. <laughs> be a great way to disappear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's still, I'm sure it happens. But yeah, without your passport, it's kind of a pain in the neck. So yeah, just like on that theme of how tired people are all the time, the work is so demanding that it can be an absolute shock to your system and really takes a little bit of getting used to. A lot of people would probably quit within the first two weeks, but ships have kind of worked out a system around this. You pay for your first flight to the ship and you pay for your medical examination. My medical examination was 500 Canadian dollars and my flight was a couple of hundred bucks too. So when you get to the ship, you've made a pretty big financial investment and you want to stay at least long enough to pay off that, you know, 
whatever you spent, especially if you went into debt to get there. A lot of people borrow money to get that initial investment. It's a forced labor red flag, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. By the time you've earned that like $900 that you would need to go back home, it's been at least a month and you've been love bombed by your new friends and you've kind of grown used to the situation and you're ready to join that sea cult. <laughs> <laughs> Crew are chronically overworked and underslept to the point that your body is going to do weird things. Your period will act up, your skin will rebel. I lost 20 pounds and I got compliments because I looked toned, but really I was just skipping meals on my two hour evening breaks to sleep. I had to pick between food and sleep. I was doing a ton of heavy labor and more exercise than I've ever had in my life. And I wasn't like compensating in my diet for it. It was not great. That being said, I really liked the food on board. I've heard it depends on your ship. And sometimes the food can be really awful. And that's one of the things that people are like quick to be like, oh, the ship food is awful. But I loved the mess. Never had a complaint. They often did special celebrations for holidays, including like fancy displays and crepe days. They did a really good job about like, trying to maintain that level of cheer. <laughs> it's like, this just keeps you just, just from like going way over the edge of despair, you know? Yeah. They're distracting you with shiny things. So you don't realize how little sleep you're getting. And <laughs> my experience is obviously coming from like a place of privilege. I am a white Canadian going to work on the ship. I am very sure that, some, and I was working in the shops, which is one of the easier locations. So a Filipino housekeeper might have had, for sure actually, would have had a way different experience than me. But from what I could tell from people I'd spoken to, nobody had ever been tricked onto the ship, which is like the number one thing that you look for in forced labor. I never read about anyone being tricked, and I haven't experienced it firsthand by talking to anyone. What happens if someone wants to leave early? You can. You just got to pay for it yourself. Okay. Yeah. Which, you know, sucks. But they don't they never withheld wages from me, and I don't think they make a practice of doing it. At least the big ones don't make a practice of doing it very much. So It's already way better for labor than seafood. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. I'm like thinking of just like the Canadian agricultural business, and I'm like, you know what? Like, it's actually not so bad. Cruise lines are really upfront about the expectations of the job because they know that if people come and it's just so intense, because they need millions of workers, right? There are so many cruise ships and they need the workers to be reasonably happy because the passengers are going to notice if they're being served by a bunch of miserable, you know, people in bonded labor. <laughs> yeah. Nobody on vacation wants to like visibly see that the people helping them are uncomfortable. Yeah. And I mean, maybe sometimes they are. I'm sure a lot of the time they are. But it's not like anyone was tricked there and it's not like anyone's being forced to stay. And at the end of your six months, you do get to go home and you do get to choose to stay at home if that's what you want to do. <laughs> All right. I've spent a lot of time on that. I just I feel like that's the number one thing that people are really like concerned about is the labor on ships. And I don't think it's the number one thing people should be thinking about. It's the environment, which we're going to talk about in the next episode. Oh, but first, no. we're going to talk about. But first, we're going to talk. But yeah, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about like my my experience, um, what I saw, what I've heard from other people, and what I read on um, studies and stuff. So maybe I'm wrong. Again, correct me. Please come at me if if what I've said is incorrect. I'm happy to be corrected on that. But let's move on to passengers. So 
When I talk about how a cruise line might affect a community, people are often like, well, passengers aren't really anyone we need to worry about. They're having a great time. Well, you might remember like a hundred years ago when the pandemic started in 2019, 2020. I thought you were going to say a hundred years ago when the Titanic sank. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was also a bad time for passengers, but it was bad for crew too. So (laughs) that's like a, it's a Venn diagram of passenger and crew trouble. No, cruise ships got a lot of attention in 2020 for having some of the worst outbreaks in the world. Looking at you, Diamond Princess, with your 695 positive cases out of 3,711 passengers. (laughs) 14 people died, just a fun fact. So yes, ships are basically incubators of disease as people from around the world party in a giant petri dish, but it didn't have to be as bad as it was. Ports in the Caribbean were turning ships away in late February of 2020 due to reports of flu-like symptoms on board. And ships, instead of quarantining, instead started moving ports. They just started shuffling their ports around to find those who would accept them. And they would offer bargain basement deals to passengers in order to keep people sailing, going so far as to lying about the danger of COVID, saying it was a cold weather illness. So booking a Caribbean cruise was the smart (laughs) bet. Yes. I mean, I guess that was kind of like the narrative people had early in the pandemic, but still that's pretty scuzzy. Yeah. Yeah. And like maybe even if you didn't know, cruise ships... Trust me, they know that they are a hotbed for sharing illnesses. Part of the training that you get is extreme cleaning. Like uh, norovirus outbreaks are extremely common on ships. Noroviruses, like for people who don't know, it's it's vomiting and diarrhea. It's not a great time and it spreads very quickly. So a ship that has a norovirus outbreak needs to go into like, uh, like there's three levels of like lockdown basically. And by level three, like you're all just kind of in your cabins. But the problem is that like, if there's a norovirus outbreak and all of the passengers disembark, the crew are still on board. So if there's a norovirus outbreak going through the crew and they're not careful about like shutting that down, we're just going to keep infecting the passengers as they board again and again. Mm -hmm. So ships are really good about like, at least mine was, for the most part, keeping things pretty tidy. If there was more than one person sick, they would quarantine them. And then like, you have a certain number of passengers who are sick and you start doing like extra cleaning procedures and stuff. So it's wild to me that they really pushed through on that COVID thing. Like that's the (laughs) hill they're going to die on. (laughs) When ships like finally stopped sailing, friends of mine were trapped on empty boats for like months because they couldn't get flights home during the height of the first wave when all of the planes were grounded. Oh no. Yeah. I had friends that were posting on Facebook that were like, day like they're like month two on the ship and i'm like ah that sounds awful although they get the skating rink all to themselves (laughs) (laughs) so at the height of the pandemic when it was all started starting to kick off and cruise lines were shutting down the president of princess cruise lines jan swartz said this and i quote in a video on on twitter We ask you to book a future princess cruise to your dream destination as a sign of encouragement for our team, as a support to the people, companies, and communities who rely on us, as a vote of our collective faith that we will find solutions to address this virus together, and as a symbol to the world that the things that connect us are stronger than those that divide us. And I'm like, princess is a subsidiary of Carnival, and you guys made $21 billion in 2019. Do you need... Do you need people to buy future cruises or can you just shut down for a couple months? (laughs) (laughs) 
in the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more, a lot more, about the effects of the environment and how cruises affect marine life. It's going to be a little bit of a heavier episode, but it does have a lot of really important information in it that I think people will be really interested in learning. I couldn't I couldn't put it down myself. I was like, oh my God, this is why it took me so long. Like the environment section, I just kept going. So I'm going to leave it here for, for now. This is a like upbeat sort of first episode. How are you feeling so far? You know, so far it's not as bad as I would have thought, but... I had not really ever thought about the environmental impacts of cruise lines. So Me neither. I, yeah, I'm scared for part two. Yeah, I probably should have like, I should have like <laughs> divided it better, but this is how I did it and this is how it is. Enjoy everyone. <laughs> no, I like it. It's like a mini cliffhanger. People will have to wait two days to find <laughs> out what's really shitty about cruise lines. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to if you want to correct me or if you want to talk to me about any of the things that I said, you can reach me on Twitter at pullback podcast and we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network and I invite you to check out the Invisible Institutions podcast. We were really lucky to host Megan Linton on our last episode and I'm happy to recommend her podcast about all of the ways that people in Canada can fix the institutions around us. So yeah, I listened to her first episode. I think that's the only one that's come out so far. Um, at the time that we're recording, there's maybe more by the time we release the episode. Um, and it's it's really well researched, really interesting, a little dark, but if you like our <laughs> podcast, uh, that will help you. So <laughs> check it out. Amazing. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you on the next one.